Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to today's episode of the Food Junkies podcast. Our Swedish sugar guru, Bitten Johnson, is back today to speak with Dr. Vera Tarman about the hotly debated topic of fasting. We believe fasting is a tool or medical intervention to be used cautiously. These two powerhouse women discuss how their personal and professional journeys have evolved over time. They also discuss the difference between time-restricted eating and fasting, why those with food addiction should avoid fasting for long periods of time, why we shouldn't practice intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating in the beginning. Hint, it has something to do with the understanding of our hunger cues and energy levels, how Bitten incorporates biochemical repair, why we should avoid eating after 6 p.m. if it can be avoided, why addiction medicine vetoes other interventions, and their plea to other professionals to learn about food addiction. Welcome, Bitten. Hi, I'm Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your co-host today, along with Molly Painshop for the Food Junkies podcast. Today, we speak with Bitten Johnson, the addiction specialist for Sweden. In fact, for all the world, no, uh, Europe. We're just going with Europe right now. Uh, Bitten is the registered nurse who has spearheaded the Addis and Sugar tool that does deep investigation of sugar addiction. She is the founder of the Certified Holistic Addiction Medicine Program, and she's on the faculty of IMFACT, the International Food Addiction Counseling Training Program. She is also the food addiction specialist for the KetoBasedDietDoctors.com platform and runs a very successful Facebook group called Sugar Bomb in Your Brain. Uh, So that means that there is a lot to talk about, but today we are going to focus on the highly contentious issue, or at least in my mind, highly contentious issue of intermittent fasting. Should you or shouldn't you? Is it for you? Bitten, are we going to be duking this out? Can Can you please introduce yourself as you wish more and uh, give me your personal take on intermittent fasting. Maybe you could start with what your aha moment was. You know, it's always a process. So, you know, I started 27 and a half years ago with, you know, a food plan and I felt I was very much white knuckling it. You know, it was a lot of brown grain in it, whole grain, this and that and so forth. A lot of starchy veggies fruit, low fat. It was really low fat. We were very afraid of fat. Basically only olive oil and very measured. I mean, we didn't use a lot. And I felt not, and I've never liked veggies and fruit in all my life. I think they're cold and tasteless. (laughs) So to me, that was a battle. But I understood being a food addict, I had to. I had to take away, you know, the junk food the stuff that I was overeating, but I still didn't feel very well. So 2005, actually, what happened was that, no, it was actually before. Somebody said, have you read this book about this author, Stian Stureskaldeman? I said, never heard of the guy. Well, he he's writing about you. So that was strange. But then it was about low-carb, high-fat. And he was actually dieting himself very sick and to death. 
And then he didn't know a lot. So he thought, well, I'm going to die anyway. I can't do these diets, you know, low fat, all that kind of stuff. So I might as well eat what I want. So I'm going to eat eggs and bacon. And that was shocking at that time. What we learned was what were you going to die from? You know, butter, eggs and bacon. My God, that's deadly. But anyway, he started eating that and he became healthy. So I started reading the book and also... At that time, you know, low carb started in Sweden, the movement. And we were a small group of people. And the interesting thing was that these people said to me, oh, you know, sugar addiction. There's no such thing as sugar addiction or food addiction. If you only get people to eat low carb and they balance their blood sugar, then they're going to be cured. You know, that was a word they used. And I just, you know, said, oh, my God, are you guys crazy? I knew that wouldn't work because, you know, I knew addiction, being a recovering alcoholic and all that, the addicted brain is very, very strange to get to know. And my students loved your lecture because you made it very clear if we not take away the drug because the brain has been rebuilt or wrongly wired. I don't know what we should call it, but sick wired. And people get very sick, both emotionally, physiologically, socially, and spiritually. So very few understand that. They think it's about the food and the blood sugar. So I had a hard time with the low-carb people. For a while, you know, I didn't really want any contact with them because I felt they didn't understand this. That's a really interesting uh, distinction that you made so early on because we're really following a similar diet, low carb, and food addiction is fairly low carb too. But you saw that there was something else that was missing in that movement. It was something else missing. You know, it wasn't only about food and it was still low fat in the beginning. People were very afraid of fat and so forth. And they didn't really understand what low carb meant either. You know, uh, they were arguing grams of carbs more and diet and body and weight. And I felt I couldn't go with those people. I could not be in that movement. But then later on, I started realizing myself that nuts and seeds and, you know, then they started eating these seed crackers and keto desserts. Well, we didn't call it keto at that time. It was low carb desserts. Yeah. And it was a lot of milk products, you know, whipped cream. People could eat whipped cream and uh, raspberries for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and at night. So, I mean, it did nothing to help their eating behavior. And they didn't understand addiction. So then for many years, I really stayed out of that movement until actually people starting to talk about keto. And I had heard long time ago that There was two studies showing that milk products, not butter and ghee, but all the rest, cheese, whipped cream, sour cream, you know, all this stuff, actually could give, unproportionately, a high amount of insulin release, not in accordance with the amount of carbs that was in it. You know, if you read the on whipped cream, just plain whipped cream, you know, it says a certain amount of carbs, but, you know, people got craving, they couldn't stick to the food plans. And this is what I noticed with my clients that as soon as they had all those milk products in, and at first I was thinking, well, do they remind them of ice cream? Uh, Is it a gooey stuff, a yogurt that they want? So I wasn't really doing the connection with insulin. But then I started to be more and more interested in insulin being a nurse. You know, I started to pick up pieces here and there about hyperinsulinemia. And that's when keto came along and really got stricter, take away the milk products, not butter and ghee, 
but you know, and cut down uh, on uh, and vegetable seeds, you know, started to be alarmed about inflammation. And I, I had so many people with fibromyalgia that when they cut that away, the inflammation went away. Huh. It's not like they were healed or cured, but you know, it was an incredible difference in pain. Excuse my printer, it's going to act up every time I'm on Zoom. It's going to balance something. So this was, you know, things that I started noticing early. And then I thought, too, isn't this strange that we in the food addiction community don't talk about insulin and Mm. metabolic syndrome and all that? So I thought there must be a connection somehow, you know, if carbs is sensitive So I started to read more about insulin. And and my aha moment, Vera, was when I read an old study which showed that it was Joseph Kraft, and it showed that if two people about the same age, same body composition, same sort of health or whatever, like if you and I would eat an apple each, one of us could have 10 times more insulin release than the other one. And this was really baffling without being sick. I mean, it was like a biochemical individuality. And the thing was that I'd been interested in biochemical individuality for many years, reading a book about that, that was written in 1956. And I thought, you know, being in a hospital setting, working as a nurse, we never considered that. You know, you could give the young military guy the same amount of pills, the same strength as a 80-year-old lady with, with another illness. And then when I read about that, it's dawned on me that something is going on here that you need to look at. Yeah, so that well, was know. really my aha moment when I started considering this and, and understanding. And when I look back on some of my slides, my PowerPoints from long, long time ago, uh-huh. there is a couple of slides that say, overactive pancreas, question mark. I'd never heard that. But there was something I noticed. It's not like, you know, the light dawned in my head, you know, all at once. There was steps along the way, which woke me up. And I, wait a minute, this got to be something here. And then the next step, oh, wait a minute, maybe it's this. And, you know, I started reading and very much I did talk to my clients. Just want to um, backtrack a bit just for our listeners. So very early on when the the concept of keto and the focus on insulin, you notice earlier on, even earlier than uh, the medical profession, that there was something about this. um, Some people had a hyper response to insulin, a hyper insulin response more to a carb than other people. I just want to say for our listeners that that even just that question or that awareness is even today in 2021, we're not really in the medical realm thinking in those terms. So this is, this is really cutting edge, even for today. Okay, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And now it really baffles me that yeah. people don't catch that right on. The mechanism behind this was the, was the diet. That's what you're, is that what you're? Yeah, but I saw, you know, that some of my clients, I know they were honest, Vera. I, yes. You know, I could swear on my parents' grave is what I said, that I knew they did not cheat on their diet, on their food plan. I think that's a better word than diet. They didn't cheat. They were devastated. They cried. I mean, they tried everything, I promise you. Every tool that we had, and that's not only food. You know that. There are so many tools that we use. Yes. Behavior changes, thought changes, emotions, spiritual programs, social programs. 
I mean, the toolbox we use is huge compared to what the low-carb people, they had only food. So everything I did, some people did not lose weight. And something I learned early on was that when you have a client and you take their arm and you do this, you see, you can lift my skin. That means that I have very low insulin. I'm not insulin swollen. Uh And if you've been working with thyroid clients, you know about mixed edema? Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, that's a very specific edema up here. So I was trained in looking at that and I started touching them and they didn't have mixed edema, but they had a very weird swelling. Today, I touch people a lot when they ask me about this. May I touch you? And mm. I touch. You can't lift the skin. It's stuck. It's really swollen. Mm. And they don't have to be very overweight in order to be that they have a weird swelling, a weird edema in their body. So their bodies did not respond to the traditional food plants that we used. And what we we could call that swelling was because of, it was like an artifact of uh, high insulin? Yes, that's what I figured when we started to look at that. That's news to me. I've never heard of that. That's news to me. That's very interesting. I've never heard of that. Start touching your clients and you're going to see something very interesting. I think we should have something called bitten sign. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't know who taught me this. I think there was somebody in the integrated functional medicine world. (laughs) And this is also something, Vera. And if you look back where you are today, with all the knowledge you have today, so many of the things that you see today coming up in research and literature is not new research. Yes. It is old research, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, Yeah. and you know, I read uh, Sugar Blues by William Dufty. I read uh, Nancy Appleton. I read uh, John Judkin early, early. I read my favorite is Hidden Addiction by Nancy Phelps, that uh, female doctor. She was so ridiculous. And uh, I contributed my book to her and John Judkin saying, you guys were right. Uh, (laughs) 2016, when my third uh, volume came out, because I read those and I was so beat down by medical community. And what dawned on me was that I met a doctor that I'm very fond of in Sweden today. He's integrative functional medicine MD. And he said in a lecture, one thing that really hit me that I want us to look at, he said, traditional medicine is one ill, one pill. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that made me think, I'm very curious. I read research about inflammation, but they don't know addiction. Uh-huh. I read research about insulin, keto, yeah. they don't know addiction. Yes. I'm not an expert on anything. But I am darn good at connecting dots. The synthesis, yeah. Yeah, and I'm I'm curious and I try. So I started experimenting with my clients, of course, within (laughs) good measurement. I mean, I didn't Uh do crazy things, but I understood this. And when I could say to my clients, you know, something is wrong in your body. Something is wrong biochemically in you. You're not bad. I believe you. I do believe you are adhering to the food plan, that you're doing everything we tell you to do. I really believe that because, of course, they had tremendous shame. They think I do something wrong, sit and eat chocolate all night long or whatever. Yes. Yes. Of course. And I didn't. I saw that they were honest. And that made me think there's something screwy here that we don't catch. 
And that's so, something Stewie is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but anyway, that was a long explanation, Vera. But, you know, it's been my years. Well, I want to bring it out for our, our listeners because this is very interesting, but I mean, not everybody's up to par with these concepts. So I just okay. want to really want to flesh it out for our listeners. Yeah. So we're talking about insulin and basically the nutritional, like you were talking about dairy, dairy as being something. Yes. Yeah. And then I realized that that time, this is 2005 to 2008, maybe I started seeing that if we took away dairy products, yeah, I could keep the butter for most people and ghee, but dairy products, when we really took that away, everything, you know, things started to happening in their body. And this swelling was starting to get right. noticed that it started to loosen up. Uh-huh. And they were very relieved. And at that point, I was working, one of the uh, nutritional experts I trained, Pernilla, at that time, when I had the treatment center, she and I l- did a rough measurement. This is not a study, okay? Yeah. That 70% of the clients we had at that time, they could not handle dairy. Yeah, and, and that their weight stall would be broken. Like they had actually yes. lose some of that yes. weight after that. Yes, yes. Yeah. But yeah. it took a long time. It could take a long time before we took it away. It's not like it happened in a few weeks or something. It could happen in months. And the, the tricky thing when you work like this is to keep them motivated day after day after day to stick to it. Yes. That, that is the tricky part. And you know that to working with clients. How do we help yes. them to stick to this? Yes. Because you will get results. Yes. The thing that I used was telling them that they had extra sensitive biochemistry and that was sort of a gift, really. But Uh we had to work out more tricky ways to adjust it. So they weren't bad in any sense. Yes. That's important to tell them. Right. I mean, the the, the term that I use is just the person is more carb sensitive. They're just more sensitive. But it's actually specific to some carb. So how did you go from that realization in 2005 or so to intermittent fasting? Like where's the, I'm assuming the insulin is the thread behind all of this. Yes. Autophagy, you know, how to clean that bad cells and do that. But the thing Mm -hmm. with fasting, first of all, I don't like that word. Mm -hmm. I know it's used by many experts today and they don't mean it in a negative way, but it's dangerous with food addicts. Yeah. to understand why, you need to understand how our brain gets so weird wired over years being addicts. And here I lean back on the thought that most of us started our addictive career, whatever you're going to call it, when we were three, four, five years old. No other drug in the world has that early exposure. Yes, That's before our brain is actually matured there are so many things that you need to understand about the brain yes, and neuroscience in order to understand the default, the craziness in the way we become wired with addiction. Yes. What's really important to note here is that things like impulse control don't really become matured until teenage life. And there we are in early years, like you're saying, already laying the map for addiction, which which um, impulse control cannot touch it. Well, you know, in the prefrontal cortex, you have uh, decision making. Yes. You have impulse control. You have self-discipline. Yes. When I started working many years ago, they said that prefrontal cortex mature at the age of 20. 
Oh, wow. And then later on, they said 25. Wow. And I read a study recently from Oxford in England where researchers say that it doesn't mature until you're about 30. Huh. Now, this is very interesting. Is it the hen or the egg? Uh-huh. Which comes first? Could yeah. it be that it wasn't that way in the beginning, but we didn't notice when we were cavemen? I don't think so. I think it matured much earlier. Is there something, a component, that makes it re, uh, rewire or wire together, wire together? It's something yes. that's hamper it? Yes. Of course, I think the latter. You look back at the history, and I really remember you saying a couple of years ago when I listened to you in InFact that about 10 years back, so it would be, what, 11, 12 now, uh, the food industry have much more chemical shit in the food than they had earlier. And this is something I notice. I think kids are very noisy today, rowdy. They don't listen. <laughs> Teachers complain. I mean, it's not the kids' fault. They put in something in their bodies and brain that yeah. makes it work less optimal. Yes. And also, something I studied a lot within you know, the keto, uh, low-carb community, which I think they are better at than we food addiction specialists was, is... What is the kind of fatty acid profile you need around your neurons and your myelin sheets huh. you know, in the brain? Well, it isn't, you know, vegetable oil or seed oil. It uh-huh. is animal fat that you need. Uh-huh. So in order for that to be optimal, because I started early taking fatty acid profiles from my clients because uh-huh. I came in contact with people that did that. And that is extremely interesting to see. And the ratio between omega-6, omega-3 should be 3 to 1. And those people that are tested is way, way higher. It means that you have a tremendous amount of vegetable omega-6 fat in your brain and body than omega-3, the EPA, DHA. So this is another very dangerous thing, you know. And that's also what made me start thinking about vegetable seeds, nuts, you know, everything that has vegetable uh, oil, uh, omega-6, to be very careful with that because it also increases inflammation. Yes. But let's go, so let's go back to the, how does that fit with the fasting? I mean, I, this is all a buildup. I know. You know. I get so excited when I talk about it. So when, when from in the beginning in the keto community, we didn't talk about fasting, you know. Right. I know. I, this is a yeah. development that is almost exploded. Yeah. Yes. And it's been like it's going from strict to stricter to more strict. Mm-hmm. So when people start to come to me, my clients, and say they maybe they should fast, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they associated that with the old way the, the health people did it many, many years ago when they only drank fruit juices or boiled potato water or whatever crazy things they did, more like a starvation diet. Yeah, I just wanted to find for people who are um, confused, uh, just sort of what the traditional um, terms for fasting are, because I know you're going to introduce your piece about restricted eating, which I think is a much better term. But just for people, historically, there's been these concepts of fast, which can be anything from every other day, you know, eat or don't eat, or don't eat for two days like the weekend and then eat like Monday to Friday, so five and a two, or even just straight out don't eat for a 
whole week or two weeks or even a month, a prolonged fast. Uh, so when, when we talk about fasting, we have to be specific. And it seems to me that the most popular version, and I'm guessing this is where you're going, is what's called intermittent fasting. I don't know maybe that's restricted eating where you might have just windows of the day where you allow yourself to eat like maybe 12 in the afternoon until seven at night. And I'm guessing that's where you're looking at is that kind of you're eating every day, but maybe only once or twice a day. Well, fasting to me is eating nothing for one day or five days or two days and maybe drinking water. Also, the thing is when you ask, when people ask you about fasting, you have to ask them, what do you mean with fasting? Exactly. You yes. Answer the question because it's going to be very screwed up on otherwise, you know, so you can't do that. And I see all kinds of weird eating patterns out there. Yeah. So that scares me a lot because people jump from one to the other and, you know, you shock your body. But I do know if you look way back at research, to cut down on your eating. When we were cave people, we didn't have, you know, food to eat every day. So, you know, sometimes we didn't have food in a day, maybe just water. And we didn't die from that. That wasn't dangerous. We were in that way. So there is one thing to eat every day, the same amount of food that could have maybe some negative consequences in certain people. To jump a meal now and then, I don't think that is dangerous at all if you have knowledge. If And also, let me point out, I only talk for addicts. All other groups, I don't care. I'm not working with them. I only talk about addicts that have this weird brain. <laughs> it's lovely, but weird brain, where we have a lot of crazy things going on, <clears throat> you know, with uh, obsessing about food and all that kind of stuff. Yes. So with them... You have to be very specific to really explain that you both understand what do you mean? Uh-huh. What do you mean? So if somebody has some kind of high insulin resistance or medical thing where you would think that jumping a meal now and then when you could, that wouldn't be dangerous. What I see in this when you have a window like between 2 p.m. to 6 p.m., then a lot of people eat all the time. I don't believe in that. And those are a lot of other reasons for that, that if you eat grace a whole afternoon, your body don't rest to reproduce hydrochloric acid, enzymes, and all the things you need to break stuff down. Uh I think if you're going to have these patterns, I think you need to talk to somebody, a professional, and try with somebody that is assisting you in how you feel and what is happening. Because for us, you know how easy we break into a relapse. There's one bite and we explode and we start eating like crazy. And then you do everything. So like for me, I have my bulletproof in the morning. I love my fat coffee because I'm fat adapted. So I eat a lot of fat in the morning. And then, you know, usually I have lunch and then I have dinner before 6 p.m. Sometimes I'm not hungry at lunch So my lunch can be at 2 p.m. And then I'm not hungry in the evening. So I'm not hungry before 6. So this happened quite rarely, but it does happen. So I jump my dinner. Uh And, you know, I feel pretty good doing that. And then, you know, the next day I eat breakfast, lunch and dinner again. Uh Well, nothing, but I've known this for years. 
So I feel very stable. If I'm not really hungry, I don't sit down and eat. Uh It is definitely not something I recommend people, you know, to do in the beginning because you don't have hunger. You have craving. People say to me, I'm not hungry and I'm not stuffed. There's some queasy feeling in between all the time. I want to eat, but I'm not hungry. So you know the clients say that. So that's why you have to teach them hunger. Yes. And that can take months and uh, up to a year. That can take a long time yes. where you listen to your body and you give your body appropriate nutrient on certain times. You teach your body yes. to you know, have a restriction between meals. Yes. And, you know, this concept of, I use the term appropriate hunger, like we need to teach our clients appropriate hunger because we have what's called false hunger, which is fed by dopamine or by insulin and insulin and dopamine are are connected together. And the kind of hunger you're talking about is the Graylin hunger, which is the kind of hunger we want to depend on. And the other thing I, I really want to point out is that for food addicts and those of you who are listening, you Come on, be honest here. How many have used starvation in the past multiple times? I'm just not going to eat for three days because I had that big cheesecake. And then you have another cheesecake in three days. And that deranges the whole insulin dopamine profile. You don't have a fighting chance to do any kind of proper restricted eating plan. Yeah, exactly. exactly. All of this is becoming completely, uh, it's, it's a deranged pattern. So, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I am so concerned about intermittent, well, any kind of fasting in the food addiction community, because we're not coming out to the plate clean. We've got a deranged profile already. Yeah. And also, it's not only that. If you look at the uh, whole body, we, you look at the microbiome. We have a very broken microbiome. Uh, uh, we have a fatty acid profile that is crazy. If we flood uh, our brain with dopamine, we don't have receptors to take it up because your fatty acid profile is broken. Uh-huh. And here are some of the, all the details you have to sit down with your clients and draw and explain in a not a medical way, a very simple way to them. Here, give them little pieces of this, little pieces all the time, you know, that they start putting together that their body is both simple you know, in some of the functions and very complicated and Uh that it's going to take a long time and that they need our support and others' support on their way to healing. I mean, that's, you know, where do you buy patients today? I don't know. But here are some of the things that we need to help our clients see instead of having this racing brain. I got to lose weight fast. I got to heal fast. I got to fast. I got to do this. I got to do this. So you um, discovered about your own experience with this fasting. So what made you decide, okay, I can actually use this as a tool with clients, like as opposed to just eating well, like why even introduce the tool? Something must have told you this is a worthy tool. And when do you decide that it is an appropriate tool? You mean restricted eating? Yes, yes, Not yes. fasting. I don't use No, no, no. no. And actually, please, please give me your definition of restricted eating and then um, when and why you would use it. Well, that is, you know, the thing when people start having appropriate hunger, which can take very long for some people, and you can sense, you just touch them and feel that insulin resistance is starting to loosen up. And also another thing that's very important is energy level. When you start having a stable energy level, right? that's something else. I quit quite some time ago to ask people how they feel when they eat. I ask, what's your energy level? 
you know, ah. how to restore your energy. So when they do a diary, a journal, you know, write down what you eat and write down your energy, like between zero to 10 and start looking at energy because you want to be stable. You don't want to be crazy high and then crazy crash. You want to be stable. And I teach them volatile blood sugar. So that's when I started to connect the dots. So sometimes when normal hunger comes, some people have days when they're not so hungry. And they started to asking me then, should I force feed myself? <laughs> that's the word they use. Should I eat although I'm not hungry at all? And I said, well, you've been stable very long. So try to not do dinner then and see what happens. And they felt good the day after, but it's not a pattern they repeated all the time. Uh But it's happened now and then. And that's, you know, when it dawned on me that when we were cavemen, we didn't have the same amount of food every day. So maybe that is a natural way to live sometimes that you jump a meal or something. But that is not fasting. Not that what the traditional definition of fasting. Okay. So, and they could do that without harm. But this is, of course, people that have been stable for a long time. And it's not something you do day after day after day. I'm going to just ask you, uh, if I were a patient speaking with you right now, now I consider myself pretty stable. I've been uh, off of uh, a lot of stuff for quite a few years. But if you were to say to me, and I'll be honest with you, Vera, if you're not hungry at six o'clock when you eat, try and miss a meal my first reaction would be, oh my God, I can't do that. And because my fear of hunger, which I will have because that's my time to get hungry, being a food addict, that was a trigger uh, to night hunger, a night eating. And there is no way I'd want to go close to that trigger. So what would you say in a circumstance like that? Because I know I'm not alone. You should eat. Uh, I would definitely tell you to eat. So there are some people like like with a history like mine where you would not recommend that. Were you a volume eater? Yes. Yeah. Okay. They are my trickiest clients. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So like me, I never been able to eat a lot of food because I hate being tired. And then I get like, you know, in coma. Uh, Yeah. So even like the big (laughs) Christmas coma, yeah. (laughs) You start eating at 3 p.m. and you eat until 9 p.m. You know, you eat and eat and eat. Uh I never like that. I Uh never because I hate feeling sluggish and tired. I'm a speed freak. Yeah. So I rather had a big piece of chocolate and ice cream uh, instead of a dinner. So I I was just joking, saying I'm a hardcore addict. Uh Um, And I never was interested in pasta and flour and all that. But so some people are like me and Mm -hmm. they can do it. And the, the volume eaters, I totally agree with you that they are the trickiest clients because that seems like it has its own life, you know, the fear of taking a bite and going into a binge and eating volumes or being hungry later. Yes. Because they have suffered that a lot. So, of course, yes. this is not for everyone. Absolutely not. Okay. But if somebody has a severe insulin resistance and they would feel that, you know, they want to try to jump a meal, I would, of course, talk it through with them. Where do you alarm somebody? Do you have any crazy food at home? I mean, I would go through a lot of stuff with them and yeah. said, try it, please try yeah. it. So, th- so there's a real distinction here. Like you as the clinician, as the not a friend, not yourself, the person that's doing it, are making a distinction between is this person psychologically able 
to do the fasting? And then also, what's the medical reason for it? So you mentioned if the person's insulin resistant. Yes. Uh, so, you know, there, there is a medical reason for intermittent fasting. Like the, that's how it started was as a response to metabolic syndrome and diabetes and other reasons, of course, too. So do you want to elaborate a little bit on um, some of that? The fact that you need to be a skilled practitioner working with somebody, that this is a tool that shouldn't just be thrown out willy-nilly into a community to say, give it a go. No, and, and the people that are seeing that experiment all the time with this yes. themselves, they starve yes. and fast and they do all kinds of weird things and change diet. They are metabolically very sick when they come asking for help. Wow. And they are take forever to heal. Yes. And they're probably food addiction sick too. Yeah, those are the ones I work with that yes, have right. all these right. problems. So if you do this under controlled forms where you know where you have your client and you have a very, very open dialogue about their eating patterns and you know their health issues and the emotional status and the life situation they're in, the social life, the support, you can go through all of these like a checklist. And if you see it, this is okay. I don't have a problem with saying, well, try it. Yes. And they might come back and report that, you know, it felt good. It's not something I'm going to do every day, but, you know, I really felt that something happened in my body. So they felt relieved somehow and calmer. Yes. So I said, fine. Okay. You can do it now and then, but always in a dialogue. You know, my favorite name of the addict brain is the red dog. Yes. I said, Red Dog probably going to start telling you to do this every other day to lose weight and be real skinny or something crazy. And then, you know, yes. you're on thin ice, babe. Yeah. Can we actually address that? Because we're recommending this if we do based on the health reasons, but a Absolutely. lot of people are doing this for weight. So what's your comment about that? I used to say that if we weren't weight obsessed, body obsessed, we yes. would have conquered the universe. That's a joke <laughs> I have. And uh, because I feel that that is one of the sickest thought process we have in the world today uh -huh. to compare bodies, compare look and always have this, you know, it's amazing where it come from. Skin is not enough. People will be skinny, skinny and skinnier than skinny. Yes. And it's like an obsession. Yes. It's yes. really an obsession. It's really weird because like it's never enough. So uh, one of the things I work with is done when I work with clients is function to go from looks to function, uh -huh. to really do a meditation where you start loving your eyes for what you see, your hands that you can pet your dog, you can uh -huh. hug, you can write, your butt to sit on, your thighs to walk with. I mean, you can uh -huh. come up with hundreds of things. To really, when you work with this, you work with this tool of switching focus from looks to function, how amazing your body is. And that's what I think it's interesting too to give people knowledge about the inner part of their body, how pancreas work, how your stomach work, how your brain work, you know, how your heart work, blah, 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 all the connections, microbiome and so on, muscles and so forth. And I think that will help people to revere, I don't know if that's a good word, uh -huh. to cherish, cherish the yes. body. Yes, yeah. respect, yeah. How special our body and our brain and, and we as human beings are. 
you focus on that instead of your X amount kilos or weight or function and also this right. comparing business. Yeah. When we spoke with Dr. Roy um, the other day, who uh, does a lot of intermittent fasting in Canada, she said that sometimes people don't lose weight. They, in fact, may weight stall or even in a rare occasion gain weight. Like it's not a surefire solution to losing no, no, weight. No, 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 no. You have no. that experience yourself in your practice? Absolutely, absolutely. And please elaborate I, for the people who are wanting to do this for weight. Yeah, <laughs> it's very dangerous. Yeah. It could backfire on you because when you take down the amount of food you eat, your body going to say, oh, my God, it's war. You know, <laughs> I better stop all metabolism. So right. then the body stops everything and you stall. As I say, it's like an airplane stalling in the air, crash. Uh-huh. You know, so you gain weight or uh, don't lose weight or gain weight. Yes, that's very common if you don't know what you're doing. Okay. So it's not an easy tool to use. It can be very efficient in certain situations, and it could be very dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. Right. One of the ways, so you use your, your sugar tool to determine how addicted the person is, right? And, and that's information that you need to do the psychological piece. And then there's the whole um, metabolic piece, like using this as a health tool. So what is the benefit of intermittent fasting in your experience with what you've been talking about? Well, it is a tool that can kickstart uh, stop the insulin release. A yeah. body that has stalled, you could kickstart it. You could sort of shock it into, oh my God, what's going on, you know? Okay. And you could start getting a more normal insulin response. So that's the only way I use it. I don't, there's a lot of, you know, autophagy, getting the mitochondria going. There's so many things, but you know, that's not the way I've used it. Okay. I haven't worked in depth with people like that on their health. Yeah, I want addiction. Yes, thank you for making that distinction. Like the people, like Dr. Roy and Dr. Jason Fung in Canada, who's I don't know if he started the whole thing, but he certainly put it on the map. But you know, the whole point about how it does reduce insulin, which is what you've been talking about, insulin resistance. It decreases the inflammatory markers, which is another kickstart. So if you've got yes. fibro, it can kind of halt that. Anyway, so there's a real medical reason, but we're working with the food addicts. And so, Bitten, do you want to give an example of what a food plan might look like for a food addict that incorporates intermittent fasting? Uh, Well, the food plan is not, you know, there's no special food plan for people that do that. It's just that either, you know, you jump meals. That's the one I recommend. Like we have three meals a day and then you can jump meals or jump a day. You know, but you don't keep doing that. And then you take electrolytes and you drink water so that you don't, you know, feel very sluggish. That's very important that you do these things. Uh, Okay. And you don't uh, overexert yourself on exercise. You take it easy and you let the body heal. So it's also waiting in the body, as we say, in order for the body to calm down and take it easy. You don't stress your body doing this. You see it as a cleansing property. But, you know, I always also add breathing exercise because, you know, 60% of your body's natural detox is nose breathing. So Uh I teach them that alongside. And I talk about sleep. I talk about physical exercise, you know. Jokingly, I call it LSD trips, you know, long, slow distance. Uh They can walk slow, (laughs) but not to overexert themselves. Right. You know, so that's the way I use it. 
And then it is depending on the client's insulin resistance or edema or problem with, as you mentioned, inflammation. Uh, I also talk about microbiome, the stomach, you know, if they're constipated or all kinds of stuff, or if they should try a whole day or just jump a meal and usually take away lunch or dinner. But some people don't like breakfast. So then I said, okay, quit breakfast then and have lunch. Uh They have to try. Yeah. I don't uh, have enough experience working with this, but I saw um, some people talking about how the best time to do a fast is actually in the morning because that's when you're, um, you're the most insulin resistant. So it would make the most sense to put the intervention at that point. And I think the idea, no, no, I'm sorry, is to eat in the morning and, and fast at night. And as I said earlier, that's something that would terrify a lot of people. For me, if I'm going to jump a meal, I jump breakfast. Yes. Because yes. I've never been a breakfast eater ever. So yes. I can get up, start going, and then I start feeling hunger at noon. So then yes. I can have my lunch. Yes. And also, we have to mention OMAD, one meal a day. Yes, Some please do. Eaten that way. And I think if you eat a meal instead of going grazing, I don't think that's good for the body that you eat constantly between like yes. 12 and yes. 4 or 6 or something. I think you stress the body in that way. So it's better to have a meal. And when should that meal be? Well, you know, it's keto, it's protein, fat, and veggies. Yeah, but when should it be? Oh, oh. I was talking about, they were saying that should be actually in the morning, before two o'clock, before three o'clock, not at nine o'clock, which is, I think, when a lot of people do have that super big meal. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, there is no rule to say it should always be between two, between three, between four. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you have to listen to the person, okay. how they work, when they work, when do they have a time to sit down and eat a good meal? And also, you know, talk about chewing so they don't throw it down. They shouldn't yes. be so hungry so you throw it down because right. then you can have dumping yes. and then you're hungry in an hour again. I mean, that doesn't work. So I'm not into so many rules, you know, that it should be from 1 p.m. Okay. to 2 p.m. I'm more into listening to the client. How does your life look? Are you a lone three-child mom that three kids at home? When would you fit it best for your life? Or do you work and commute? Or I mean, but, we have but, to listen to these things. But nine o'clock at night before you go to bed? No, 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 never. I, I always tell people to never eat after 6 p.m. if they can, if okay. they if it's not in the way that they have a job or commute or can't get to food or something. The best thing is to eat before 6 p.m. and then, you know, nothing until breakfast next morning. Okay. All right. I, I just want to make that clear because I do think that that's what's happening with a lot of people who are doing it on their own. Oh, yeah, they save it up like Weight Watchers, you know, yes. that's my point. So they save the food up and then they yes. binge at night. That is not creating metabolic health, I'm telling you. It's also in a healthy from a food addiction point of view. Absolutely. Well, it sounds to me like the way you're describing your practice, you kind of just let it flow organically. Yeah. I listen um, a lot to their life. Yeah. And, yes. and I believe firmly in biochemical individuality. Is there ever a time when you think, no, this is somebody who shouldn't do this? Like, to anyone- Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. People that have a lot of slips, lapses, relapses. Yeah. You know, no way. You have to be very stable in your food addiction first. And addiction has veto over everything else if you're an addict. 
That's very important. I mean, if you have an addicted brain, you have to go with that treatment plan number one, number two, number five, number 10, before you can start adding the others. Because if you don't, if you're not stable in your addiction, everything can go you know, crazy wild if you start working on the other parts. Okay. That's what I'm saying, that people don't understand how crazy an addict brain is. Can you give an illustration of how something can go crazy wild? Because I'm sure it's happening out there right now. So let's... Oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, you don't know, you don't understand how crazy wired your brain is with addictions. The addict brain is wired in the way that you don't think you're sick. You uh-huh. think you can manage. Okay. So you think you're like everybody else. We call this denial, folks. Yes. Good. <laughs> denial is not a river in Egypt. <laughs> yes. Yes, uh, exactly. But denial can sound like, no, no, I'm not admitting it to you, Vera. I'm denying it. But uh-huh. this is on a level where you don't know you're denying. Yes, exactly. Yes. And one of my students said this time in the class when we talked about addiction, she said, I would call it a shape-shifting ghost. I thought it was a beautiful saying. Ah. You can't trust yourself. Yes. As I, I've called it red dog for years, you know. The red dog is cunning, baffling, powerful, and very patient. Yes. So it can trick you. It's seductive. It can Which is tell why you, we need a coach. Yes, exactly. A sponsor, <laughs> a coach, a professional, whomever. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, you know, with any other disease, if you go to a professional and they tell you, okay, you become healthy if you do A, B, C, D. You do it. But with addiction, you think you could run the show yourself. That's uh-huh. a symptom of addiction. Yes. That you think so. You know, I don't let my clients do their own recovery plan. That's not going to work. Uh-huh. As a professional, I have the guts to tell them, no, that's not going to work. You're crazy if you do that. Well, I don't say you're crazy, but you know yeah. what I mean. I say, if one has an addiction, this is the way you have to do it. It's not going to work any other way. Right. And I also said, how many years have you tried it your way? Yeah. Oh, 30, 40. Did that work? No. The food addict would come to your doorstep and say, I've just been on a relapse and uh, I want to do intermittent fasting. You know, I'm going to stop for two days or whatever because Five I've just days, been on a relapse. Yeah. yeah. How would you handle that? You want to ruin your body and your brain biochemically. Sure, do that. I'm not uh-huh. going to play with you. You know, this is the way you have to do it. You have to wait for the body to heal. You have to wait for your pancreas, your insulin, your microbiome. You know, I start talking about all these things. And I said, if you do that, you screw it up worse. And you risk the worst relapse in years. And I tell this is a progressive (laughs) illness, is what I tell them. Right. So each relapse is going to be worse. So if you start eating now, you might not be able to stop until five, 10 years down the road, or you might be dead. I'm right. very tough. So a so person who's come to you uh, in a relapse is clearly metabolically unstable and psychologically unstable. So that would yes. not be the tool. Because yes. you said, I heard you say earlier, and I just want to emphasize this, that intermittent fasting may be a tool, but you have to be food addicted stable. Yes, absolutely. And, and yes. I also say too that addiction knowledge has veto over other knowledge. Right. Thank you. Thank you. See, I think we're on the same page Even if you are the best insulin expert in the world and you tell people you have this insulin picture of yours is really bad, you need to do A, B, C, D. If that's an addict, an addict has to lay out the plan first. 
Right. Otherwise, you lose everything. Right. And when the person does uh, do some kind of restricted eating plan, they still, I heard you say this too, it doesn't mean that it's for the next number of hours, you get to eat whatever you want. You're still no. following a low carb keto or the food plan that you were following before. There's no making no, or compensation. No, 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 no. That's right. No, it's not going to work. That's doing, that's a dragging. That's active addiction. Exactly. Smoke. No. Yes. I mean, would it be fair or am I pushing this? Because I admit I'm very biased here that a lot of intermittent fasting is just food addicted behavior. Of course. Yeah. yeah. That's why I use the sugar tool to make sure to see, is this an addict exactly. or is it a harmful user? And yeah. that's what I tell people. If yeah. you have an addiction, you have to listen to addiction medicine first and then how to heal your body. You can't go the other way around. Okay. Well, I hope I didn't push my agenda a little too strongly. No, 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 no. You did not. No, I, no. I, I enjoyed talking about this in, you know, very simple terms. I, when I read your question, I thought, oh my God, are we going into medicine in detail? No, 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 no. I, I, oh, I, I, it's no. really just I'm to glad. say that there is metabolic sustenance to this concept of intermittent fasting. Of but I have been a very vocal opponent, not because I don't see the value of that, but because I just see it as a tool that is going to be used for the wrong reasons. It's a way to hurt yourself because you've just fasted, or pardon me, you've just binged, and now you're going to starve yourself. It's a kind of way to get back at yourself. That's active or, addiction. That's active exactly, addiction. Exactly. It's all active addiction. Yeah. So do you have any statement that you would like to make to the um, low-carb keto crowd about intermittent fasting, some kind of commentary? Learn about addiction medicine and neuroscience. If you have an addict in the room, yes. you know, refer them to us first. We send them back to you when we stabilize them, but we have to work with them first. And that's what <laughs> I say to all other medical staff, integrative functional medicine people, uh, you know, naturopathic doctors, nutritional specialists, everyone. If you have an untreated addict in the room and you don't understand that, you can really screw up that person metabolically. You mean well, but you don't understand the addicted brain. Exactly. And so that tool of intermittent fasting or even some of the foods like those keto bombs and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. can be very, very dangerous. We have to basically treat the food addict with kid gloves. Basically, yeah, we, I mean, we eat natural food. We don't eat keto dessert, keto bread, keto, keto, just because it's keto. I don't know what natural food with one ingredient, real food. That's what we eat all uh -huh. the time. We don't fall in this trap of the business with the, you know, bars and powders and pills. I don't believe in powders either, Vera. Yeah, good. You don't. The protein no. powders and all the rest of it. Thank you. No, I've never seen powders work. You know, yes. I don't think that the body can read the molecule structure in powder. Yes. Yes. It's not food. You yes. don't take it up. So it's just a waste of money. Throw it in the toilet. Well, thank you. I think you've been very succinct in your last words, but anything last that you want to say before we close up? No, I'm, I'll say that I'm very grateful that you interviewed me and we talked about it and we have the same opinion, you know, and yeah. uh, we are addiction specialists. I really want yes. to point that out. So they are the ones that we care about and we understand addiction and that's the way we should treat this. Okay. Thank you so much, Bitten Johnson, uh, our keto specialist, food addiction specialist in Europe possibly soon beyond that. Thank you so much uh, for this, this very contentious issue of talking about intermittent fasting. I'm sure the conversation will continue. Anyway, thank you so much and all of you listeners as well.
Thank you. And, and Vera and Molly, all three of us, we can teach the keto community addiction medicine if they want. Yes. Yes. Right we welcome that. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bitten. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.